Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. At times, um, felt like I was definitely making a difference and then other times that you're like all right the sustainability is is definitely not there so yeah like any program it's got its challenges i i wasn't in the peace corps i just happened to be living in this tiny remote village in the bush of west africa and i i met my wife there what's up guys welcome back to another episode of no blackout dates i'm evan i'm tim and today, Ingrid Olson is joining us. She served in the Peace Corps for two years, working as a preventative health volunteer in Senegal. She trained local health workers on malaria prevention, child health, and nutrition, and did a bunch of other cool stuff as well. We're going to dive into what it takes to be in the Peace Corps, what the experience is like, and her advice for anyone thinking about joining themselves. Before that, though, let's get into hot takes. Tim, you got one for me? I do, Evan. I'm curious if you were to do a volunteerism opportunity, doesn't have to be as long-term as the Peace Corps, but if you were to travel somewhere to serve, where would you go and what would you do? Wherever needs me, Tim. I'm there. I'm there to answer the call. Africa, Asia, America, anywhere. Put out the call, like the bat signal, and I'll be there. I could just see you going somewhere and like working in a school, maybe teaching English as a second language. Full transparency, I'm probably too lazy and not enough of a good person like Ingrid to, to do that kind of thing, to sacrifice my, my time for uh, the greater good. But I think you're probably right. I would actually, I've never formally taught before, but I would love to teach. I don't know if I'd be great at teaching English. I know a lot of people go abroad to do that because I've myself barely mastered English. But I think something with helping people in countries where it's difficult to take advantage of opportunities to get into a higher education or um, job opportunities. So like I have friends that I met in college and grad school who basically come from fairly poor countries and disadvantaged economic backgrounds. And they, even though they have college degrees, they have to work 24 seven to support themselves and their families because of the, their socioeconomic position. And they're applying, like a few of them are applying for grad school or applying for jobs, and they just don't have the resume to, to get in because they don't have the resume building opportunities in their home country. So as a result, people like that kind of fall to the bottom of the totem pole, whereas people from more Western, uh, richer countries with more opportunity go to the top of the, the ladder. So I feel like I've always wanted to do something helping people either wh whether it's uh, resume writing or helping people connect with volunteer opportunities that will look good on a resume, uh, connecting people with work experience out of school, stuff like that, um, even if it's out of high school. So I think that's something I would, I would want to do. I have no idea where I would want to do it, but that's uh, something I've been thinking about as more and more friends I've met abroad kind of struggle to do the careers they want to do because of their economic background. Right. Yeah, that's a worthy endeavor. Does that make sense that I describe that well yeah, enough? Yeah, no, I, I get you. I get you. I, I think for me, I would I would want to go somewhere where I could help a community uh, or a city develop a, develop sustainable infrastructure, uh, probably around you know transportation or 
our food systems, you know, help with composting and, and, and that's, that sort of stuff. Because I think there are a lot of places in the world, particularly in places like Africa, where they're at a unique point in development where they can skip a lot of the super energy intensive uh, grid that Western countries have been built on and go straight to having renewable energy systems. And you're seeing this in Africa already. I would love to be a part of helping something like that develop. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the evolving trend when it comes to urban planning as it is, which is good. All right. Uh, My question for you, Tim, is would you consider completely reversing the order of appetizers and entrees? having your op- your entrees first followed by appetizers. Do you think you would ever do that? Uh, I think it actually makes sense. I think it makes sense to end the meal with like the lightest thing, like a salad, right? Mm-hmm. Completely uh, agree. And, and, and start, I'm, I'm not a big dessert sugar guy, but I suppose that if you're going to do sugar, it probably makes sense to do it at the beginning, particularly if it's dinner and you're not going to be awake for that much longer afterwards. Sugar, right? I think sugar is a different issue completely i'm okay i guess with sugar at the end the appetizer entree thing i've always been and no one ever agrees with me on this because they're like oh why would you have your why would you eat nachos after your steak like why don't you you, you want to have something to share at the beginning of your meal no you don't because you're going to fill up on nachos and then you're not going to be hungry for your steak which is why you went to the restaurant in the first place or you eat the steak but you're not going to enjoy it because you're too full for the nachos, but you're going to feel obligated to enjoy it because you're spending 40 bucks on it. You want to take the edge off your hunger when you get there, you're starving, you sit down, you're like, I'm ready to tuck into some steak. You don't start the meal with some moth sticks, nachos, calamari, whatever. Forget all that stuff. That's all. If you're still hungry afterwards, then come the appetizers. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're, we're running up a tally of how many episodes you bring up moth sticks on. <laughs> Uh, I, I think, I think that, uh, the reason I, I agree. I think you have a good point there. I think it's never going to happen because if restaurants did that, they would never sell the appetizers because people would be full after they ate their entree. It's honestly the biggest scam in the world, having appetizers first, because they get people oh, to yeah. think, oh, it's we're, absolutely we're all hungry. A money like, grab. Oh, we can finish it's this. It's absolutely a money And grab. they buy, they get a ton of apps. And they're like, well, we obviously have to also have an entree, so we're going to get our entree. They don't finish the entree. And then that's it. They like they spent basically twice as much money as they needed to. But if you had the entree first, which makes infinitely more sense, then the apps, you'd have the entree, you'd realize, you know what? I'm full. I'm not that hungry. Like I don't need the I don't need the appetizers. So you'd only you'd have your your one portion size, you'd have your steak and you'd go home. That's why Americans are fat probably, to be honest. We love our appetizers too much. Yeah, well, I so I just I just looked this up and there are, there is proof that the reason why appetizers are so prevalent on menus is because the restaurants wanted a way to squeeze more money out of each diner. That's the only reason appetizers even exist in the first place. It's criminal. Absolutely criminal. I'm glad yeah. we're on the same page as this. You know what? This is my volunteer, uh, my mission for volunteering. I'm going to raise awareness about <laughs> price gouging on appetizers. Reverse the trend. Reverse the apps. Entree first. Appetizer second. <laughs> It's actually funny. I met. I, Hashtag I met reverse the my, apps. Uh, it's coming. Reverse the apps. Reverse the. I, I met up with a professor of mine from college last week, and we went to an Italian restaurant, and uh, we were looking at apps and we we're looking at um, entrees, and we were deciding if we wanted appetizers. And she was like, "Well, I'm pretty hungry, but you know, I don't want to fill up, you know, before having like my chicken parm that I want." I'm like, "You know what?" I was like, "I don't know if she's going to be down for this, but like, let me suggest it." I'm like, "All right, why don't we do the entree?" 
And then after the entree, if we're still hungry, why don't we get some appetizers? And you could see like the gears turning in her mind. At first she was thinking, that's weird. Like, why did you just suggest that? That's not what people do. But then it clicked and she's like, you know what? That actually makes a ton of sense. Let's do that. Right. PhD, professor, on board, you know? It does make sense. Yeah, like it makes sense in every reason except for the restaurant's bottom line. And you know what happened is we we were full after the entree, didn't need the appetizers. Great decision. Save money, didn't get too full. It's just great all around. But all right, hashtag reverse the apps. We're going to get into the interview with Ingrid. We'll see you guys on the other side. Ingrid Olson was a Peace Corps volunteer stationed in Senegal for two years, and now she's here to talk to us about all things Peace Corps. Ingrid, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Evan. Let's just start with the basics. Where did you go? How long were you there for? And what were you doing there? Yeah, so I was in the Peace Corps Senegal program, and Senegal is pretty easy to picture. There's kind of the bulge of Africa, and it's directly in the middle of the bulge. Um, Dakar is the capital and actually sticks out a little bit. Its nickname, I think, is like the gateway to Africa. Um, so it's right in the middle. It's sub-Saharan, um, directly below Mali. Uh, so kind of below Morocco, going like further down um, the, the coast. Um, so it's coastal, a lot of fish. Um, and I was there for about 27 months. That's usually the length of a Peace Corps program. A little over two years, you get a few months of training, and then it's supposed to be kind of a full two years in your permanent site. Um, and in Peace Corps Senegal, there are five sectors, um, and there are additional sectors to that in Peace Corps, but basically a different sector is um, a way to differentiate the different types of volunteer work that um, PCVs, for short, Peace Corps volunteers are doing. And so in Senegal, there was health, uh, preventative health education, um, community economic development, and then three kind of uh, agriculture. One was agroforestry, sustainable agriculture, and urban agriculture. Um, and so my sector was health. I had an interest in public health going into the program. Um, and I was um, within kind of the health sector. We had a framework with three sort of buckets of work that you could participate in sort of depending on what your community's needs were and what your interests and your counterparts and your community's interests were and those were mostly around uh, malaria prevention and then also water sanitation and hygiene um, and then I spent a lot of my work in the realm of kind of maternal and child health so maternal health and then specifically children under five um, preventing diarrheal dehydration uh, screening for malnutrition, that kind of thing. And what were you doing before you entered Peace Corps? Did you have experience that was uh, relevant and useful when you were abroad? And um, what kind of motivated you to pursue that experience in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, what I was doing immediately before Peace Corps um, was actually working at a nonprofit in Lynn, Massachusetts called Girls Inc. Um, so I studied anthropology and sociology uh, with a minor in women's studies in undergrad. Um, I've always had an interest in traveling. I studied abroad a lot in college. 
um, anthropology is essentially the study of like human cultures and behavior. Um, and so I had been inspired kind of over the course of my lifetime. I had many teachers growing up actually that had traveled or worked um, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa. I had an interest in, in traveling there. Um, and I was inspired uh, the, for the first time specifically to join Peace Corps by a, a high school teacher that came and did a presentation in my French class. She had done Peace Corps Madagascar um, when she was straight out of college. And so that was the first time I really heard about it, loved hearing about her experiences, had thought about it for a while. Um, and I had initially planned to do it right after college, but I went to college in Minnesota, uh, St. Olaf College. And um, being away from home for four years for school, I sort of craved being back home in the Boston area for a little while before kind of taking off again. So I worked uh, for two years at this nonprofit um, called Girls Inc. I actually was doing an AmeriCorps program, which um, for anyone who's like, oh my God, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, yeah, like what's going now. on? <laughs> yeah, AmeriCorps is uh, sort of like a domestic, it's kind of like the domestic version of Peace Corps, although they're very different programs. Um, but it's kind of similarly, they're both um, sort of volunteer-oriented, service-oriented programs that are designed for people right out of college to help build skill sets and kind of get exposure to different work environments. Do AmeriCorps and Peace Corps volunteers hate each other? No, I'd say there's, there's probably a little bit, um, maybe just like a tiny bit of overlap. You do the Venn diagram of the two. It's not common that people do both, and I would say that is mostly because they are very much uh, volunteers. You you get a living stipend doing both programs, um, so you're not making money. It is absolutely meant to just get enough money to live, uh, but you're not building any savings or anything. So it's um, I was very fortunate to have had like support of my family. I lived at home when I was doing AmeriCorps, um, and then in Peace Corps, I was able to um, dip into some savings and and sort of reestablish myself financially when I came back and I was after doing both of those programs. What Talk a little bit about the process of going into the Peace Corps and the training and the language learning involved. How was that? And did you feel like you became fluent uh, in what you needed to? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that off the top because a lot of times the number one question I get is like, what's the most challenging thing about doing the Peace Corps? And a lot of times you think like, sort of uh, people who haven't done a program like that think that, um, you know, living without those common amenities like hot water or electricity or things are, that's what's most challenging. But by, by far, the most challenging aspect of the entire experience was learning the language. It's, you I actually was like reading some of my old journals and a journal entry after journal entry is just me talking about how frustrating it is that I'm trying to learn this language and um, and how rare it is that you are in a situation where you have no idea what's going on around you and you're, you know, struggling to communicate and be able to, you know, exchange words with people and you're trying to establish yourself. Um, so to back up a little bit, um, there's a, you know, kind of several month application process because a lot of logistics goes into, you know, preparing to leave and resettle somewhere for the next two years. Um, so it's definitely not an overnight thing. Um, 
but so a little bit of thought into, you know, deciding when to apply and then knowing that you might not depart, you know, until even in maybe like a year after you've started, started the application process. Um, then you're put together with a cohort of other volunteers so that everyone, at least, you know, one chunk of volunteers are arriving in the country at the same time and all getting trained together. So for the Senegal program in particular, health volunteers and community economic development volunteers, or SED for short, health and SED were two sectors that uh, a cohort would come together. And Senegal is a, um, Francophone country. It's a former French colony. And so uh, we use the word stage. So instead of cohort, um, we were a stage of like 60 volunteers that all arrived and left the program at the same time. And so we got some training together if it was like kind of generic uh, cross cultural training training and then um, within our we also had separate sessions that you know we got a lot of sessions as health volunteers specifically on kind of that health framework i mentioned malaria water sanitation that kind of thing and said was doing their own thing so we arrive in senegal and then we've got um about two to three months some programs do full three months our program was a little bit shorter about two months of mostly language training those first like eight to nine weeks you are trying your best to become as fluent as possible in whatever local language uh, so there were eight or nine different languages that people were learning depending on where they were placed in the country i was kind of fortunate that i learned wolof which is the most common language spoken in senegal um, it is also the most widely spoken so almost anywhere i traveled in the country i could um, use that language some people in really remote parts um, tended to be ones who spoke French better because when they traveled around, they could still um, be able to communicate with people via French. Um, and so we're placed in really small language classes. I was one of three or four people at any given time with you know the teacher to student ratio, super small. And then we were immediately placed actually in host families near the training center where we were for those first two months um, to try to get the you know to learn a language you really got to immerse yourself in it and you got to it's kind of like survival you got to just get plopped in into the middle of it and um i had language class you know probably four hours in the morning a break another four hours in the afternoon um you know almost every day for for about nine weeks trying to learn as much as possible and then we would, after that, have kind of an official swearing-in ceremony as Peace Corps volunteers, sort of beginning our service, would move to our permanent sites. And after about three months being at your site, we did have another kind of come-together training session where we got a few more language classes, um, a lot more technical training, depending on our sector. Um, and then from there, I would rely mostly on other volunteers to help with any kind of additional language classes, sort of our formal language training uh, tapered off after after six months or so. So how long did it take you to learn <laughs> the language that you learned? Wolof, Wolof, yeah. Wolof. Yes, um, I would say my comprehension was significantly better after about a year it takes i'd say a full year of living and speaking the language that you really kind of feel like you're getting to that fluency level 
Um, and then the second year, I'd say like my full kind of second year, even my last six months or so, it does take a really long time. And you, you feel like you're getting it within that first year, um, probably within the first six months, you know, I can, I could communicate at, um, depending on what I was speaking about, if I was speaking about something health related, I had a lot more vocabulary. So I maybe talked at like an elementary school level, other topics, I maybe sounded like a toddler. Um, but yeah, I could definitely get, you know, my needs and, and like basic thoughts across probably within the first six months or so. But that second year, particularly the, the latter half of the second year was when I felt like my comprehension just skyrocketed. I'd, it's all that time spending with my host family and, um, you know, working with my counterparts and having, you know, really developing close friendships and relationships, um, I could tell that my, by hearing, you just absorb so much of what other people are saying, you kind of finally get to that level where you can speak so much better because you know what sounds right. It takes a long time to, to understand what sounds right grammatically. And how's your wall off now? <laughs> um, I'm always afraid when I call, I call my host family, I try to call at least a few times a year around the holidays. Um, I'm able to, unfortunately able to connect with them via WhatsApp. Um, so we send a lot of voice messages back and forth. So my greeting is still pretty decent. Um, I can exchange, you know, pleasantries. Uh, if I were to have like a full conversation right now, I'd be a little rusty, but, um, I actually met my partner, my fiance in the Peace Corps, and we went back to visit in the fall of 2019, which was so lucky because it was before the pandemic. Um, and it was amazing how I was nervous. I was I had forgotten everything and then getting back there. And even within a few days, like so much vocabulary came back to me just by hearing it again, um, that it was like riding a bike. I felt like it all, it all came flooding back. So it's kind of there, like lives, <laughs> it lives in the back of my brain, but, um, yeah, it helps to keep, to keep up with it. That's why calling my family and talking to them regularly is really important. That's perfect. So I was going to ask you to do the whole rest of this interview in Wolof. So now that you've <laughs> told me these, I figured you might want to hear a little Wolof. I can definitely say, uh, so greeting is really important. How? It's a, it's a hospitality culture. So it's very much a part of the culture when you, you know, see anyone, you pass someone to say, hi, how are you? How is the family? Are you in good health? How's work going? Um, that kind of thing. So I can say, Anawa Senegal, Mbayeni Sijam, Siloneka. Yeah, it's like, hi. So sounds right I hope to you're me. In peace. You could be making that up completely, <laughs> just saying sounds. What's I'll, going I'll on? I'll take you at your word. <laughs> We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. How was it adjusting to your host village and settling in and feeling a part of the community? Well, as I mentioned, uh, so the Wolof word taranga means hospitality. And Taranga is a big part of Senegalese culture. Um, so people are incredibly hospitable and welcoming. Um, so, you know, me arriving, I think before I went into the program, something I thought was gonna be a challenge that ended up not being the case at all 
was it's a little intimidating to think, you know, particularly in the health sector, you generally know you're going to a really rural area. So the idea of kind of being dropped off in like a really remote rural village where you don't know anybody, you maybe can barely speak the language um, and are going to be living with a family and working with um, the community is pretty intimidating. I was worried I would feel, you know, lonely or isolated. And there's a couple of reasons why that wasn't the case. One, again, super hospitable, welcoming. I had a wonderful host family. Um, everyone, so we're, we're kind of partnered also with community counterparts. Um, and since I was in health, my village had a local health post um, and essentially the, the doctor, um, he and I, and then also there was a sort of community health worker that worked there. Uh, her name was Fatsila who became some of my best friends. Uh, I would go and work at the health post every day um, and we would collaborate together on projects. Um, so everyone would go you know, out of their way to make sure that I felt welcomed and comfortable. And like I said, a lot of the um, importance of integrating into the community is um, showing that you care about their customs, like greeting. Um, so that's kind of, that was like the first step was all about learning how to say, hi, how are you? How's it going? And then basically walk around the village and be able to say all of that to everyone that you see and just kind of put yourself out there. It was really challenging. I'm not gonna lie, there were a lot of days, especially early on when my language wasn't really up to snuff that you're tempted to just kind of, um, you know, sit in your room and, it's also really hot uh, when I was, um, we call it installation, when you are, are officially uh, starting your service in your village, it happened to also be the hottest season. So temperatures of like 120 and um, it's easy to, yeah, want to just kind of like sit in the shade, find some like refuge somewhere and, um, you know, not have to go through like awkward conversations when you're speaking like a toddler trying to say hi to everyone um but yeah everyone was so sweet and welcoming um what do you do when you want to unwind and kind of just kick back and chill like what do what do people do for fun when you're not working um so yes i'm sure that answer has changed a lot over the years as like technology has evolved um so I feel very fortunate that you know I was able to go with a laptop, um, and there's a lot of uh, you know videos and TV shows that everyone would share on their external hard drive. It pretty much was a given. Everyone came with like you know at least like a one terabyte external hard drive, and we would all swap TV shows and movies and things. Um, so for me, um, I, I love movies, and so I would, yeah, if I really wanted to unwind, um, you know, at the end of the day or take a quick break in the middle of the day, I would be able to kind of go to my room. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is um, we were also given like little Nokia brick phones. Um, played a lot of Snake on that phone while I was there. Yeah, like the old green ones. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so. I was able for free to call anyone in the like Peace Corps network. So I could always call a supervisor, um, you know, if something serious was happening, but I could also always call other friends. So as you can imagine, you arrive in Senegal with 60 other people, everyone, you know, becomes fast friends and uh, you establish, you know, bonds that you have for the rest of your life. 
And I could always call uh, another volunteer and, you know, be able to vent or share a funny story um, or just, you know, shoot the shit and, you know, be able to kind of have some social time in English if I wanted. <laughs> I needed a break from speaking Wolof as well. But you felt like you were able to stay pretty well connected with people back home, with other people in the Peace Corps. You were, did you get homesick? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually glad that I did not. So I had the Nokia phone. Uh, some volunteers right away um, bought a SIM card and used, you know, their iPhone or, or smartphone from back home. And you could buy for, for pretty cheap, you could buy um, a data plan kind of like a pay-as-you-go data plan and to be able to use things like Facebook Messenger um, to keep in touch with people back home. I'm actually glad I didn't end up doing that until my second year. So I was like a full year in before I did that. I think in some ways um, that helped me feel like I was kind of in the moment and experiencing um, and be able to focus kind of on what my role was there, integrating the community, learning the language. Um, but it was really nice that second year to be able also to kind of connect with um, family and friends back home a little more regularly. Um, the other option is that I was able to travel about, so from my village, it took me about four to six hours to get to sort of my regional capital where all the volunteers, there's about 12 of us in that region had a shared, we, so we called them a regional house. Um, and so we had kind of a shared apartment that had Wi-Fi. And so every volunteer at some point like needed to be somewhat in travel distance of a place with Wi-Fi to be able to call home, um, but also just to be able to like check email and um, do, like at one point I wrote a grant as one of my projects. So you need Wi-Fi to like connect to the internet, you know, organize documents, be able to have an actual like workspace um, as well. So I, I generally, called home, I'd say at least once a month, if not maybe once every few weeks, um, if there was a reason I needed to travel to the regional house and I, I kind of get caught up with people. I'm curious how productive you felt throughout your time there. I've heard mixed reviews from Peace Corps, from RPCVs. Some have felt like they made a big impact and were busy and felt very good. Others, I by and large, had a good experience but felt that they could have done a lot more with their time there or that the project they worked on was not carried on uh, after they left. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And I agree. I had heard mixed reviews before doing the program myself. Um, and so I can really only speak to my own experience, which is that I also kind of had a mixed experience where at times um, felt like I was definitely making a difference and then other times that you're like all right the sustainability is is definitely not there um so yeah like any program it's got its challenges um i'd say you know one factor is definitely how sort of motivated or involved your community is in the kind of projects that you want to do or you're thinking about doing um i was in a very arid um location so basically living in the desert for three quarters of the year and then there's one rainy season where all of a sudden grass just like pops up and everything's green for a hot second um 
And so not a lot of locally produced like fruits and vegetables um, and malnutrition was one of the more pressing health issues. Um, and so she had, the first volunteer wrote this big grant and I was able to connect with like both of the previous volunteers from my community, which was nice that at various times we were able to meet and um, kind of talk about what, what sort of work was going on. Um, so she'd done a, a big grant to get that established. The second volunteer came in and that was going well. So she was, um, she sort of saw a need to start another garden at the school. Um, and so she focused on a school project. She unfortunately ended up getting um, pretty sick. And so she ended her service about a year early. Um, and so at the school in that year where gap where there wasn't a volunteer, the head of the school changed. Uh, so by the time I came in, I was a little bit trying to figure out, by the time I came also the large community garden um, had basically gone to waste. The, the, the garden project hadn't really panned out, um, but that's what they wanted most. When I was working with the women's group, they wanted to get that back up and running. Um, the school garden ended up not really panning out because the, the principal, um, when I was there, didn't want the students helping in the garden. She wanted it maintained by like the teachers and myself, which wasn't sustainable. Um, and so I asked them, I worked with them again. It was kind of after a year. I'd been there for a full year and got permission to write another grant for the same like large community garden. And it worked well that it was in tandem with it actually, um, the women's group had found funding from another source, another organization that was trying to prevent desertification by planting more trees. So we kind of collaborated together and made this big garden. It was like seven hectares um, of trees being planted and then sort of a, a smaller portion, about one hectare that had like um, some watermelon and hibiscus, tomatoes, um, and carrots, that kind of thing. Um, and so that was looking great when I left. And then I came back about two years later and the same thing had happened with the first volunteer. <laughs> so going back to your original question, like, yeah, it is a little trial and error sometimes. Um, and not every project is going to be sustainable. Um, but you, I mean, the, the ways that I felt I made an impact where like the relationships that I made that that cross-cultural exchange I, I started like a youth development program um, teaching I had a, a group of I had worked like I mentioned at Girls Inc um, in youth development before uh, so it had been sort of a side passion of mine um, and so I started a program at the middle school um, with a small group of students who are interested in health, basically in public health work, where I trained them about sort of community health topics. And then they led trainings at the, the local Quranic school and the elementary school about things like water sanitation, about hand washing with soap, um, about eating a balanced diet um, to help prevent malnutrition, about um, preventing dehydration from diarrheal diseases. Um, so there, yeah, there are other ways, other types of projects that I did that um, were much longer lasting. And yeah, the relationships that I made while I was there have continued and, and will continue. Uh, did, given the frustrations that you can experience over there, projects that aren't completed or that have issues, do people get burnt out and leave early? Or is there 
like what what horror stories have you heard from other volunteers? Uh, I mean, that could be people getting homesick and leaving, or mm-hmm. having a bad experience in their community, or you know that, that that wherever they're set up isn't organized properly, and they just get you know frustrated, burnt out, and leave. Does that happen? Yeah, it certainly happens. I would say not a lot. You know, I was like I said, I was a, I was a group of about sixty, and I I'd say you know a small handful of that group um, had that kind of experience. Um, it's a lot about perspective and expectations. Um, so if people had, the, the people that I saw decide to leave early came into the program with very specific expectations of what they thought they were doing. Either it was that they thought what it was going to be like kind of in a, in a cultural way, like there were certain um, cultural aspects that were too tough to tan- to handle and we're kind of Im- very quickly like I'm not thriving in this environment like th- this isn't what I thought it was going to be like I need to leave um, and then I'd say the flip side where people and this I tended to see um, in so Peace Corps program as a whole has kind of shifted a little bit more skills and like technical skills oriented so kind of back in the 60s when it originally started, there was maybe a little bit, it was a little bit freer when you applied, you were supposed to be willing and open to going anywhere in the world. Um, the emphasis was, you know, really on the cross-cultural experience. Um, and, you know, the demographic historically has always been, you know, people kind of right out of college. Over what I would say in the, in the 2000s we've had like a few recessions i think the program has grown in popularity among people a little later in their 20s for realizing that there's opportunity for you know growth and like professional development and when you have skills so i did my peace corps service and then i came back and i did a master's in public health at at bu i would love to like do peace corps again knowing now what i know in my master's program and there were some people there were actually two people in my cohort who had who had done the mph program at bu and then were doing their peace corps service um and so there is wonderful opportunities for um you know field research experience depending on you know what your um sort of professional field is um and so i did see some people who were sort of on that flip side of thinking that their service where they're maybe a little bit older and were thinking that their service was going to be a very specific kind of like professional experience and then if they got to their kind of permanent village and realized like oh i'm so passionate about you know agroforestry but i'm here and that's not really what my community wants and needs they're, they they want something else uh, like i'm not a good fit for this um then they may be kind of bowed out because they they weren't ready to to kind of sacrifice two years of of working on uh, sort of doing an experience that they weren't expecting so what would you recommend for someone who's thinking of going to the peace corps but maybe hasn't made up their minds and looking at whether it's for them what should they expect yeah i'd say um so it Definitely. One one thing I want to mention is that the application process has has changed. So I was still, um, I think, one of the last that applied with the old system where I just said submitted a generic application saying this is what this is who I am. This is what my background is. This, these are the skills I think I have. 
you place me in a sector and you place me in a country. Um, that changed immediately after. And so now people can apply to a specific sector and to a specific country program. So that in and of itself, I think is a big difference. Um, and it's maybe like a little bit double-edged because like I said, then sometimes people's expectations are set up in a certain well, way. Now you so get people maybe applying yeah. less because they just want to do the service and they're like, I don't care mm -hmm. where you put me. I just, I'm here all about doing the, the volunteer aspect. And now it's like, mm -hmm. I want to travel to Senegal. So mm -hmm. this is like my way to travel to Senegal because you give, you're giving them the opportunity to choose exactly where they want to go. So I feel like it's more user-friendly because now yeah. people can pick like, well, I want to go there, so I'm going to apply there. But it's also mm -hmm. maybe a little less you get people who are maybe a little more interested in travel and less on the service. Yeah, I think um, it's a good point. And it's helpful. I think in particular, it's helpful to be able to choose your sector. I had I had, had a, a friend who had actually done Peace Corps Senegal just before me by, by coincidence, we were placed in the same program. Um, and she was a health volunteer. And when I was applying, she recommended that I kind of tailor my application towards public health. Um, and, you know, just felt like it was, it was a good fit for her and she thought it'd be a good fit for me. Um, and so I did see there are some people that, you know, were placed in, for example, community economic development and maybe had like no background in business and were a little like confused at what the, you know, the work that they were like expected to do. Um, of course you get all that technical training when you're in country. So anyone listening, you know, don't, don't be worried about the skills that you need going into it. Um, you'll be supported. But um, I do think it's helpful that people can apply because then they know it's an area of interest of theirs. You know, it's something that they're passionate about. Um, and they can have like a little bit better idea about the kind of work that they're going to be doing. But my general advice absolutely is um, to, I, I like the old, the kind of historical attitude about Peace Corps being people being open. Um, and I think that that's a big key part about having a good experience is just being open and willing to um, be placed anywhere. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, in my cohort, when we first arrived, there was like a couple volunteers that knew they really, really wanted to be in a city. And that was great because they were placed in the capital. And, you know, they, they, they knew kind of what sort of level of living that they they wanted and advocated for themselves um and everyone else was you know just like no stick me stick me anywhere i'll go anywhere um yeah go, going back to uh you meeting your fiance mm -hmm. is dating popular in among peace corps volunteers does that happen a lot should, should it happen yeah <laughs> what's the tinder scene like in remote senegal yeah it's a funny it's a funny dating culture um i would say in general, of course, uh, you're largely living alone and yeah, you meet, you know, you meet people in your cohort, in your program. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to date demographics wise. It definitely skews way more women than men. Uh, my group of 60, there was 12 men. Um, and then two of which weren't interested in women, then it, it quickly, numbers quickly whittle down. <laughs> um, so it's a, it, it's a little skewed. Um, so the odds are great if you're a guy, if you're a guy, if you're a guy thinking about going to Peace Corps, um, 
have at it. <laughs> you definitely odds are in your favor. <laughs> we started at 12 guys. You eliminated like five. So you've got like yeah. seven, seven guys, like 60 women, you know, or whatever it is. So he's got, he really had his pick. Yeah. yeah and a bunch of Randy women. <laughs> um, no, so it's, it can be a fun, it can be a, a funny culture, but um, I'd say again, also demographics wise, like generally um, people are in their early twenties, early to mid to late twenties. Um, so it's a very, it's like, it's kind of similar to a college scene. I'd say, um, you know, volunteers would certainly try to get together at holidays and things, you know, on occasion, we, we would try to all, you know, meet up in one place or, or kind of all go to the Capitol um, for like New Year's or something. Fourth of July, even though it, it sounds kind of like horrifically patriotic now that we're out of that context. But when we were in Senegal, we would come together for this massive 4th of July party in the southern part of the country. Um, and people would just like get disgustingly decked out and like <laughs> stars and stripes and like, and, it would just, and all the just, people like, that live there are looking at you like, what are these people doing? Like what a yeah, weird culture this yeah. is. Yeah. It's just yeah. Tuesday. Why are they dressed yeah. up? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, no, we, uh, you know, with that kind of, group kind of a similar sort of a college like mentality if you feel um you know you want to let loose you want to be able to come together every now and then and you know have a drink um and you know be able to have a party and you know unwind um so yeah there's a lot of definitely a lot of hooking up a lot of um you know couples forming uh you get you get like-minded individuals so i'd say um myself and my partner are, are not in the minority you get a lot of couples that um meet and you get and you also have some married couples that are doing it together um, tim i know you yeah. didn't meet your wife in the peace corps but it would be a much better story if you just said that you did just be like hey like i was in the peace corps too don't ask many questions about it but i was in it and we met there and it was great i i wasn't in the peace corps i just happened to be living in this tiny remote village in the bush in west <laughs> africa and mm -hmm. I, I met my wife there but but yep. she, she said the same thing, though, that like she was in a stage with mostly women. There were a few guys, uh, the, yep. you know, they all dated and hung out and, you know, had their parties in the Capitol. It sounds like a pretty, mm -hmm. pretty common way to get through it. Yeah. Hey, you're lucky she survived the single meat market. That is that is the Peace Corps to make it through and then finally yeah. meet you. <laughs> yeah. I'm lucky that she chose to break up yeah. with her Peace Corps boyfriend. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say it's not unlike um, other, I feel like, expatriate communities as well. You know, there's something about that bonds you when, you know, you meet your like brethren in a, in a place that's like somewhat remote and not isolated. You're like, oh, what? Another? Yeah. yeah. So you, 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 you like bond with people you, you would never easily... bond with at home. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think we can wrap up there. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is super interesting. Is there anywhere people can follow along your upcoming adventures online if uh, that's something you want people to do? Yeah, I'll maybe just make a quick plug for, um, so I'm, I came back, I got a master's in public health. I've continued to be inspired by the work that I started while I was there. It was an excellent introduction into kind of global public health, uh, like I said, maternal and child health is a passion of mine. Um, and so I sort of continue to concentrate that on that when I was in school. And then for the last uh, almost three years, I've been sort of a research project manager for a small global health um, 
research lab within Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, and so we're called the Global Advancement of Infants and Mothers, or AIM, AIM, the Global AIM Lab for short. Um, so if people are interested, definitely check out our website. Um, we do, we've been conducting a, a nutrition and infection management screening intervention um, randomized control trial in Ethiopia for the last couple of years. Um, I'm also working on some analyses of a trial that happened in Bangladesh. Um, but it's all, all of our research is, is it's neonatal health focused, so it's focused specifically on kind of what sort of interventions can we do during pregnancy that help birth outcomes, birth outcomes being, um, you know, preterm birth, to how do we prevent preterm birth, and how do we get term babies that are of a good adequate weight, there's a lot of malnutrition, so babies are born too small or too early, uh, so all of our research is focused on um, trying to prevent those things and um, figure out ways to encourage um, healthy babies being born and strong and can survive around the world. Very cool. That's an AIM, right? AIM, the AIM lab? Yes, the Global AIM lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Awesome. Thanks again, Ingrid. And it's, it's been great catching up. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks again to Ingrid for joining us. That was a great chat about the Peace Corps. And now we're going to get into news of the day. First article up today. It's the end of an era. The last public payphone in New York City was just taken out. Tim, payphones are your are your era. What do you think about this? <laughs> My era, yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised. You know, I was thinking yesterday, uh, I was like, you know, I should just cancel my freaking cell phone service because who needs to, like, you can use Signal or WhatsApp or Skype for free. Uh, why do you need to be paying all this money for a cell phone? I feel like cell phones are almost obsolete. I can't believe there was still even a payphone. How many people in your contacts use Signal and WhatsApp? I don't know. I don't. The the part of the thing is, I guess I just don't want people to contact me that much, and I feel like <laughs> okay. not well, there you go. not having a cell phone number would really eliminate all the all the spam calls. I did that last summer. Well, it's funny because I have a friend who's he's very into privacy and in like information security, and he insists on using Signal pretty much. He only communicates on Signal. And he, I'm the only person that he'll talk to via normal text message because I refuse to get signal. And it made me wonder, like, how is he, what's his network like that he's able to keep in touch with everyone he wants to keep in touch with just on signal? Because I don't, I'd never heard of signal until I talked to him. I don't think 90% of my friends would have a clue what signal even is. No, I don't think so. It's not very, it, it is used by people like him that are like the super paranoid type that don't trust the government or the companies to have any of right. their data. And WhatsApp, I have WhatsApp. I think a lot of my friends have WhatsApp, but it's mainly for international travel. It's If I were to be like, hey, I, just so you know, I'm going to switch over from iMessage and just start WhatsApping you all the time. People would be like, what? Like, I don't check my WhatsApp. If you do that, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Yeah. So I, it just doesn't seem like, I guess I'm disagreeing with your cell phones are almost obsolete thing. I'll rephrase my state. Okay, obviously, you know, cell phone service isn't going to go away anytime soon. I'm, I, I will say, though, that we are at a point technologically where you could feasibly get by without having a paid cell phone service and still be just fine. Last payphone's gone. RIP. Thoughts and prayers. All right, Tim, you're up. All right. Our, our second article today, you can now rent Shaggy's Mystery Machine ban from the Scooby-Doo movie on Airbnb and... If you do so, you get to meet Matthew Lillard, the star of 
not only Scooby-Doo, but SLC Punk, Without a Paddle, all of these classic old stoner movies. Uh, but the Mystery Machine van, it's coming to Airbnb for three days only this summer. You have to log on uh, uh, on June 16th at Airbnb.com. We'll have the listing in our show notes. You can log on, book your stay for later in June. Only three lucky people will get to do that if you're lucky enough. You not only get to meet Matthew Lillard when you check into the van overlooking the ocean, you will get a late-night screening of Scooby-Doo in your van. You will get a all-you-can-eat buffet featuring Scooby and Shaggy's favorite snacks. And you will get a van experience that's tricked out like it's 2002. So I don't even get to drive the van? No, you sleep in the sit, van. I get to sit in the van. I get to Airbnb a van that I get to sleep in and not drive anywhere. Do I even get to solve yes. mysteries? Uh, supposedly there are some mystery games that come with the van. Ooh. And it's only $20. Oh, yeah, okay, for $20 you can't go wrong. But I feel like I'd want to drive the van. If I rented this van, I'm 100% driving the van, 100% solving mysteries. I guarantee that they're probably not giving you the keys to the van. You might have to, you might have to like, uh, convince Matthew Lillard to give you the keys. The question, how many people have a clue who Matthew Lillard is? Probably not that many that are under the age of 35. That's, that's what I was going to say. Okay. All right. Just squeaked in there. You're just, you just squeaked in over the, uh, over the 35 range. Yeah. So you're safe. I, I said that because I knew that you apparently did, but I do. And I think most of the people, I, but I don't know him from Scooby-Doo. I don't think I've seen the Scooby-Doo movie. I know him from SLC Punk. Was that a band? No, it's a movie. Uh, it's about the Salt Lake City punk scene in 1985. I've always been wondering about the Salt Lake City punk scene in 1985. I should watch that movie. I'm constantly asking my <laughs> friends about movie, what actually. they know about that scene, and no one ever knows. So There's more reason for me to rent the van and meet this guy. What, what, what's his name? <laughs> Matthew <Yeah>. Lillard. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, uh, that's what we got for you today. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm EbbinFlow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halkey, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.